Well, if you're following along in our Bible reading plan, we are right now in the middle of the book of Exodus. And we're actually coming up this week, upcoming, we're going to read one of the richest, most fascinating stories in all the Bible. It comes to us from Exodus chapters 33 and 34. Now, you don't need to turn there at home. I'll, uh, I'm going to summarize here. But what we've seen, this is, of course, after God has rescued his people, Israel, out of slavery to Egypt. Moses has led them out, and the nation is traveling now in the wilderness. Well, God commands them, as they travel, to set up a large tent called a tabernacle. And this is where God's presence will dwell most centrally uh, among the people. They're in the tabernacle. It's where God meets with Moses. And when they meet together, Exodus tells us that there is a, a pillar of cloud that descends upon the entrance of the tabernacle and all the people worship in awe. Well, at the end of Exodus 33, Moses is speaking with God and Moses expresses a deep desire. He says, I pray, Lord, that you show me your glory. I want to really know you fully. Show me your glory. And this is God's response. Exodus 33, God said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. God says, I'll, I'm going to give you a sense of my glory, but not the fullness of it, because no one can see my face and live. In other words, God says, if you saw me for all that I am, you would surely die. And so God sets Moses in the cleft of a rock, and he shelters him in order to protect Moses. And here's what happens. This is from Exodus 34. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with Moses as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Then God goes on to talk about his justice. But what happens here in this moment, the Lord passes by Moses to let him see, in essence, his back, but not his face. He catches a glimpse, an afterglow, in a sense of God's glory, as God declares to Moses who he is in all of his goodness. Now, why am I sharing these, these stories with you? Because we're not actually studying Exodus on Sundays right now. We're walking through the Gospel of John. But what I want us to see today is the, the stunning connection between what Exodus shows us about God and what John communicates to us about God and more specifically about the Son, Jesus Christ. Um, I have spent most of my life missing this connection, not really seeing it. Um, and so I, my, my hope today, and this is always true for me as a, as a pastor, as a preacher, uh, my hope today is that I'm able to do justice to what John is really showing us here, and then hopefully get out of the way. <laughs> um, 
Y'all, what we're going to see, this is John chapter 1 that we're in right now. We're going to look at just a few verses today, verses 14 through 18. But this is the, 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 the closing of John's introduction. It's an 18-verse introduction where John gives us the big picture to lay the land for the, the ministry of Jesus Christ. And so John's been giving us very big ideas about Jesus. Um, if, if we remember from a few weeks ago when we started the Gospel of John, he calls Jesus initially by a different name. He calls him the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now that is lofty spiritual language. But John wants to show us, of course, that he's not talking about an abstract idea of God, someone who's very far away and out of touch. But that that, that Word, the Word who is Jesus Christ, has come down, has come near. And so we see it. Look, look with me at John 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Now, we don't normally go out of order when we walk through a scripture, but today I'm going to make an exception because there, there's one verse in this section that is, is given, I think, kind of parenthetically. And so I want us to deal with it first. It's verse 15, where John quotes John the Baptist where John the Baptist cries out to the people that they would fix their eyes, not on him, but on Jesus. And he tells us why. He says, He who comes after me is more highly exalted than me, for he existed before me. Now that's interesting because John the Baptist was actually older than Jesus by about five or six months. And of course, John's ministry came before the ministry of Jesus. He was the forerunner. He came first. And yet, he says, Jesus is higher in ranking than me, and he existed before me. He's more supremely important than I am. See, what John the Baptist is proclaiming there is the same thing John the evangelist, John the author, is telling us. That Jesus is the eternal God who has come in the flesh. Don't look at me, John the Baptist says. Look at him. He's the one. He's the God Come near, come down. And y'all, if we go back now to verse 14, that's the message that John wants us to understand. He says, this is one of the hallmark verses of the whole Bible. He says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That is to say, the eternal God, the all-powerful Creator, became human. Jesus became as we are, not in appearance 
only, not in any halfway kind of measure. He didn't become partly human. He wasn't holographic. He, wasn't, he didn't give us the idea of closeness and humanity. No, but he came all the way in. Hebrews chapter 2 tells us this, that he, Jesus, was made like his brethren in all things, partaking of flesh and blood, just as we are. Hebrews 2 and Hebrews 4 tell us that. In, in Philippians chapter 2, Paul tells us that Jesus emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. John, see, John has been repeating an idea over and again in the early part of his introduction. We've seen it, and I've tried to highlight it consistently, where he continues to talk about the fact that Jesus is the light. He is the light that shines in the darkness. He is the light that has come into the world. And that's a symbol, of course, for something. I mean, Jesus is not actual physical light. What is John communicating to us? And ultimately, this is what it is. That when Jesus is called the light coming into the world, he is the divine son of God becoming a man. This is not light shining from heaven down to earth. This is the light itself coming into the darkness. Jesus becomes as we are. The word became flesh. Now, as wonderful as that idea is, this, this scripture actually just keeps getting better and better. Because Jesus didn't merely become a human. I mentioned, I think, last Sunday, Jesus didn't just take a vacation to check things out. No, the word became flesh, verse 14 tells us, and dwelt among us. Now, we don't see on, on face value what's really happening here. But that word dwelt, as John writes it, it's actually a unique Greek word. It's the word tabernacled. And we don't translate it that way typically in English because it just seems so strange to us. It doesn't read right when we see it in our, in our English uh, language. But what John is actually saying here is, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And y'all, there's an unmistakable connection at this point between what John is saying and what we saw just a moment ago as we looked back at Exodus. Remember that God told Moses, who is leading the people of Israel out of Egypt and toward the promised land, God says, make for me a tabernacle and I will dwell there among the people. And the presence of God was to them like a pillar of cloud over the tent. And so John is, is, is trying to show us a, a connection here. Now, I, I wonder if you've ever thought like this, um, especially as we read through the Old Testament. Maybe you are reading with, with us through Exodus, the stories of how God's power would manifest. I mean, we, we see the Israelites, even just very recently, we've seen them walk through dry land with the Red Sea on either side of them. The sea has been parted by the supernatural power of God. Oh my goodness. And we see God manifesting in the form of a pillar, a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And we may look at, at expressions of God's glory in that case and we may say, oh my goodness, see, that's what I want. I mean, why can't things be more like that? There's this powerful, unmistakable presence of God right here in front of our eyes. Wouldn't that be great? 
But y'all, I want you to see what John's telling us. Because John's pointing us to something better, something greater. He says, Jesus Christ, the God who became man, he is our tabernacle. Jesus is God dwelling among us. Not just in powerful displays of glory, but personally. The untouchable God has become touchable. And that's what John wants to communicate to us. Not just that the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, as wonderful as that is, but look at what he says. And we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, the one and only from the Father, full of grace and truth. And once again, John is drawing us back into the Exodus story. Remember what Moses' cry was, the desire of his heart. I pray, Lord, that you would show me your glory. Let me see your glory. Let me see you for all that you are. And the Lord says, if I do, you'll die. Instead, God gives Moses a glimpse of his glory, kind of like a passing shadow. And he says to Moses, I am the Lord, abounding in loving kindness and truth. He gives a glimpse of his glory and he declares to Moses unmistakably who he is and all of his goodness. Now let's hear John again on this. Back again in verse 14. We saw his glory. The glory of God's one and only son. Meaning it's not a half kind of glory. It's not a secondary kind of glory. It's the real thing. And he is full of grace and truth. Now the parallels are are incredible here. And and I hope we'll see this, that John is not just making an interesting connection. This is not like Bible drill, where he's trying to see, you know, who are the real Bible scholars here, that they can make the connection between what I'm saying and back to Exodus, you know, it just, you know, it'd get a little gold star if you caught it. No, he's not just giving us information. What we're being given here is a a sense of the fulfillment that comes uniquely in the person of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is the supreme and surpassing glory of God. Jesus has come to be the true fulfillment of what Moses was asking for but couldn't see. Because of Jesus, we don't have a physical tabernacle. We don't have a pillar of cloud or any other such kind of partial glimpses of God's glory. No, we have God in the flesh come to dwell with us. We have something better, greater, more ultimate than anything the Israelites saw, no matter how wonderful and powerful it was. We have Jesus. And so let's, now let's take a, a, just a breath here for a second. You know, I, I want us to think through some implications of this. One implication in, in particular, and I, I, don't, I don't think about this often, um, but the, I, I know it's in, it's, it's in my heart, at least to some degree, and I, and I suspect that, that a lot of us maybe struggle with the idea of God coming down close. Not that we don't believe it uh, theologically, but that it's hard for us 
to, uh, to grasp and to receive this thought that God comes close. Because for a lot of people, if we're honest, the thought of God coming close to us is not good news. It's actually terrifying. Because many people have a perception, an image of God that is not pure and good and gracious and loving, but of God more like a, kind of like a divine police officer who's always patrolling our behavior, always looking for something to write up, always looking for an excuse to pull us over. Or that God is, is perhaps a, a divine parent who can never be pleased. You can bring home a 98, but it's not good enough. Why wasn't it 100? Always nitpicking our behavior as to why we're not measuring up. A lot of us have that perception of God. If not fully, then at least in part. And in that case, y'all, we may have a healthy respect for God, but we don't like the idea of God getting too close. Because for God to come, to come close to us is only going to reveal how inadequate we are. God coming close is a threat to us, not a comfort. Well, if that's you, if, if that's even partly you, then my hope is that we would allow the gospel, the good news, to reshape our image, our perspective here. Y'all, God the Father did not send his son into the world to wag his finger at us, to write us up, to pull us over. Nor did God send Jesus into the world to shame us into getting our act together. Jesus did not descend from heaven and become a man and carry a red pin around always, nitpicking every little thing that you and I do as to why we're not good enough and we never will be. If that's your image of God, then, then you, have, you have missed the preciousness of what is true of God in sending Jesus Christ. When God sends his son, he sends him not to judge the world, but to save the world. Jesus comes to give himself to us. John says, full of grace and truth. We have seen his glory, the glory that comes from the only one and only unique son of God full of grace and full of truth. And here's the outcome. You see the outcome in verse 16. If that's true, then look at what happens to those who trust him. For of his fullness, we have all received and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. So John says, we have not only seen Jesus' glory, but we have received of his fullness. He is full of grace and truth, and that fullness has come to us. We have received it. We've taken it in. We saw this last week. As many as receive him, to them he gives the right to become children of God. Children, not because of our blood, our, our, our parents, our nationality, or any such human thing, but we are born of God as God's dear children because we have received, John says, of his fullness. Y'all, what this means is that Jesus has withheld nothing from you. Jesus poured himself out so that you and I might receive the fullness of his, good, of his grace, of his truth, of his love and mercy.
All of it he's given to us without limit, without measure. Now, if Jesus thought more like me, and praise God he doesn't, but if Jesus were more like me or more like you, I don't think he would have done it quite like that. I can tell you what I would have done. If I were Jesus, God becoming flesh, then I know what I would do. I would come down to the earth. Okay, okay, yeah. But I would have in mind a very specific plan. Let's see how they treat me. I'll come down and just, let's just see how it goes. And if they receive me, if they welcome me in, if they like what I have to say, well, then I'll stick around. I'm going to dip my toe in the water and see how it goes first. And if they really love me, if they really receive me, well, then I'll die for them. I'll go to the cross for them. Now, I'm just, I'm, I'm, obviously I'm being uh, foolish here. But y'all, if Jesus thought that way, let's see how it goes. Let's see how they receive me, how they treat me. And that will dictate what I then do. There would have been no cross. Most certainly not. In fact, Jesus wouldn't have made it very long here at all. Because John has already told us in chapter 1, he came to those who were his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. And so my point is this. When Jesus becomes flesh, when God becomes a human being, he knows full well what's going to happen. He knows that he will be rejected and eventually crucified. And yet he commits himself fully. That is no deterrent to him. In fact, that was his plan. His plan was to be rejected and crucified to bring about the salvation of the world. And so it's not a deterrent to him how we treat him. Did we receive him? He committed himself fully to you and me without any regard for our worthiness or how we might respond so that those who do receive him, who believe in his name, we don't get half of Jesus, we don't get most of Jesus, we get all of Jesus. He committed himself fully to us for our good and for God's glory. And we now have all his goodness forever. We have received of his fullness and grace upon grace. Now that's, that's a short phrase, but it's not a small phrase. We see it there again in verse 16. Of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. Y'all, we could translate that as one blessing on top of another. One gift on top of another. Without end forever. That's the idea here. Grace upon grace. I, I heard a guy one time, he stood up and he said, I got a list of 30 things Jesus has given me. And he can give them to you too. Well, I, I had no idea what this guy was about to say, but I was intrigued. 30 things. And you know what all he did? He had, a, he had a paper in his hand, and he just went through truth from the scripture of what Jesus has done for us and what Jesus has given us. And all of it was straight out of the Bible. And he just reeled them off one after the other. That, that Jesus gives me, gives you forgiveness of sins, adoption as sons, a new heart, the gift of the Holy Spirit, eternal life. And he just went all the way down the list. And he said, and you know what? None of those gifts are, uh, 
come with a gift receipt as if we would want to return them, as if some of the gifts weren't as, as good as the others. No, every single one of them is eternally wonderful and beyond our comprehension. He said, each one of these 30 things, you could write a book this thick just on the one and on and on forever. And y'all, that's great perspective to me. And, and I've, I say this from time to time, and I, I've got to take this to my heart and really believe it. Y'all, we will spend eternity marveling and enjoying and delighting ourselves in who Jesus is and all that he's done. Eternity, in a sense, won't even be long enough. A million years from today, you and I will not be sitting around and saying, what else? What, 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 what more is there here for us? As if it could become for us boring or as if we could run out of things to do or things to rejoice in or things to marvel at. No, it will never happen. You and I will spend eternity enjoying, delighting in, without, and I'm not even sure in heaven we'll have the full ability to truly comprehend grace upon grace. One gift on top of the other. Isn't that an awesome thought? That's true. And y'all, if you actually, if you look in verse 17, John gives an example of what he means when he says grace upon grace. And again, he takes us back to Exodus. He says in verse 17, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Now, this is a whole sermon on its own. But very briefly, the Old Testament law, which God gave to Moses and then Moses gave to the people, that was itself an act of grace. I mean, this, this is in the law, in the law of God, not just the Ten Commandments, but the entire law of God. We see so much. We see the character of God. We see the character that is expected of God's people, his covenant people. We see truth. We see righteousness. We see holiness. We see goodness. We see love. All of that is revealed to us in the law. The law is in no way a bad Thing, but the ultimate aim of the law is not the law itself. It's Jesus. We're told this throughout the New Testament. Uh, the Apostle Paul actually says the law is our tutor to lead us to faith in Christ. The law ultimately points to a fulfillment of all righteousness that comes in a person, not in a list of commands. And so this is the fulfillment of what Moses was given, because ultimately the law itself, if, we, if all we had was the law, it can't save us. It can condemn us by showing us our sins and failures, but it can't save anybody. We can't be truly made righteous through a list of God's laws. And then, John says, Jesus becomes flesh. The glorious God, the one and only Son, comes to us in his fullness, and grace and truth are realized then. They're brought to life once and for all. That we do not set our hope upon the law and our ability to achieve it, but we set our hope on Jesus Christ, who has achieved it on our behalf, the true righteous one. And grace and truth come with him. They're brought to life. They're manifest 
because our hope is in him. It's grace upon grace. And then we get one more, just one more. Verse 18, no one has seen God at any time, John tells us. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. No one has seen God, not truly, not fully, John says, but there is one who has. There is Jesus, the Son, the one and only God, who is in the bosom of the Father. Now, I'm going to be honest. I'm not a big fan of that word, bosom. <laughs> I feel like a fifth grader. Um, it's, it, I don't love that word, but it's in here, okay? And the reason I don't love it is, is it has nothing to do with the Bible. It's just a weird word to say, isn't it? But here's what it means, and what it means is so precious, that there is one, Jesus, who is in true, intimate kinship with the Father, a relationship closer, more intimate, more wonderful than we can possibly imagine. That is the Son. And so although we cannot see God, there is one who is able to make God known to us. There is Jesus who has come to explain him. And y'all, that word explain, is, it's interestingly, it's the same word that preachers are charged with. That my job is to stand up here and explain the scripture to us. Not just for the sake of knowledge, not just for information, but to explain the scripture in hopes that we would all see God through his word. So that we would praise him and devote ourselves to him and delight in the revelation that God grants to us to see and to savor him to know God that's what I'm up here hoping always to help achieve and so consider then what Jesus is doing what Jesus has accomplished there is an otherwise invisible God but Jesus has explained him to us Jesus told Philip he who has seen me has seen the father Jesus said, I and the Father are one. No one else has seen the Father but the Son, Jesus says. And if you've seen me, then you have seen him. Isn't that an amazing thing? That an otherwise invisible God, an otherwise untouchable God, a God so holy, so righteous, so glorious, that to see him face to face would kill us. And yet John is able to say, because of God's mercy given to us in Jesus Christ, we have seen his glory, and we have received his fullness. Grace upon grace. Now, I mentioned this a little earlier, how sometimes maybe we're reading through the Old Testament, like right now we're in Exodus, and I, I find myself getting a little envious. I mean, we, we see the parting of the Red Sea, we see the cloud over the tabernacle. Today we've talked about what's, what's coming this week. We'll read it in a few days that Moses catches a glimpse of God's glory and hears the voice of God as he speaks to him. And I, I read stuff like that and I think, man, I, those people got to really see and experience God. And somehow I'm less than or I've missed out. Wouldn't it be great if I could see that and experience that? But y'all, I can, I can say it. I hope we see it. I can say it with a fair amount of confidence that Moses longed to have what you and I now have by faith. 
I feel confident in saying that, that if Moses somehow, hypothetically, if Moses could make a trade between the glory of God passing by him and the fulfillment of God's grace brought about in Jesus Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the gifts, grace upon grace, that we've been given now through the cross and the resurrection, I know what Moses would choose. We have not missed out on anything. What Moses, what Israel saw only in shadows, we now see in crystal. Because we see the glory of God revealed in Jesus Christ, and we receive of his fullness all his grace and truth, one gift after another. We ought to bask in that. Just how blessed, how privileged we really are. Y'all, as we close, I want to point us to one more scripture from Hebrews chapter 1, because what Hebrews 1 tells us is an echo of what John has been telling us, and I think it really helps for us to see it. This is Hebrews 1 chapter 1. I'm sorry, verse 1. They're right at the very beginning of the book. Listen to what we see here and how it overlaps. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers, in the prophets, in many portions, and in many ways... In these last days, God has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of God's nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. God has spoken to us. God has made known his glory, his character, his nature, his eternal plan, all of it. God has spoken to us once and for all in his son, who is the radiance of his glory, a glory that is not far off, and a glory because he is gracious to us. It's a glory that does not threaten us to kill us, but a glory that comes near to save us. John, later on in 1 John, says, we not only have seen him, but we've touched him. He is the word of life, and we have fellowship with him. Now, we receive grace upon grace because Jesus has taken no halfway measures with us Jesus did not dip his toe into the world to see how we would treat him. He already knew what was going to happen. He committed himself fully to us, for us. And so may we do so in kind. As we look at Jesus, as we trust him to become his brothers and sisters and children of the Father God, may we give ourselves fully to him. No halfway measures. No dipping our toe in to see how God might treat us or to see what it's like to really be devoted to him. No, would we jump in all the way, fully submerged into the ocean of his grace? And this is an ocean that has no bottom, an endless love, a kindness and mercy that makes us living trophies of the grace of Jesus Christ. May we commit ourselves to him as he deserves, and may it be our greatest joy. Would you pray with me?
Father, I pray that we would just, that we would marvel, marvel at what we're seeing today. And I do hope and pray that I've, I've done it some justice. And Lord, that you will impress not my words, but your word, chiefly your word, upon our hearts. That the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as of the one and only from the Father, full of grace and truth. And we have received of his fullness and grace upon grace. All of it, Lord, we've received as a gift by faith. Would you please stamp this on our hearts once and for all forever? That we would take no halfway measures with you. That we would not commit ourselves to you in part, but Lord, in whole, all of us. Freely, joyfully given to you in light of your free and joyful gift of your son Jesus, the gift of yourself for our sake. Father, let it be that, that we would recognize uh, a Savior who has, who has tabernacled with us, a Savior who is present with us, dwelling with us, Lord, even now, in ways greater and more powerful than we can imagine. And Lord, let us be a people who respond to him with faith, with joy, Lord, with everything. As those who have received grace upon grace, one lavish gift on top of another forever. Thank you. Thank you. In Christ's awesome name, thank you. Amen.